1: That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 116 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your ticket to the EU. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zune, as well as Stitcher, and right on our own Facebook page, at Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here, let's get the show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, Mark Herleman, and with me like a Skywalker with the Vendetta, the EU guru himself, the Count of Continuity, Mr. Nathan P. Butler.
0: Vicariously, I vavoom and vilify and buh something that would make Vendetta make sense.
1: Indeed. Vector, V for Vendetta, or something like that.
0: <laughs> of all things, vectors. what didn't come to mind?
1: True. You would think it would have just leapt to you, but it left you hanging. Well, here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we wrap up our Star Wars Vector crossover event coverage with issues 28 through 31 of Star Wars Legacy. Now, before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you our quick, spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's arrogance.
0: That's right, we're taking a look this time at basically what amounts to parts 9, 10, 11, and 12 of the 12-part vector, whatever you want to call it, crossover, cross-through is the way they later described it, um, that makes up legacy uh, vector, in this case. Legacy vector parts 1 through 4. Remember the way that these things wind up getting released out there, you essentially don't have a legacy trade paperback for this. What they've done is two different vector trade paperbacks and the first one includes the Knights of the Old Republic part with the Dark Times part, which is six issues total, four and two. And then this part is found in the second of the Vector Trade paperbacks, uh, which, of course, has the two Rebellion issues and then these four Legacy issues. So six issues again. So if you're looking for these and you're, you're not finding them amid the Legacy volumes or the Rebellion volumes, for instance, for this one, check under V for Vector. They did a weird numbering where each one gets a number as if it's part of the trade paperbacks of the original series, but what's actually on the cover is going to be simply Vector. And uh, it'd be good to note here again as we're going through these for the last time, whether or not uh, these series meet the criteria that they set for themselves when they were putting together Vector. According to the editorial staff, in the letters page of Knights of the Old Republic number 25, which was Vector part one of the whole shebang, they said that the three goals they had are Number one, to make the events in the crossover mean something to the characters in each of the four series. Vector must change the course of every series it touches. Two, the series must be reader friendly. The events in Vector must be easily accessible to both new and long time readers. And three, Readers must not feel they are forced to purchase issues of series they wouldn't ordinarily read in order to follow the story of the crossover. Every chapter of Vector must work as a standalone story within the series in which it takes place. And so far, KOTOR has managed to pretty much hit the marks. Um, but we found that both Dark Times and Rebellions parts pretty much fall flat. They feel very much like they are simply uh, connective tissue that means... Pretty much nothing in the grand scheme of things to either series. A little tiny bit to Dark Times maybe, but certainly with Rebellion, it might as well not even have existed in most respects. Um, in that sense here, uh, I guess there was a need for a little bit of wariness going into the Legacy part, but of course Legacy gets four issues like KOTOR did, and Legacy usually is some pretty strong storytelling overall by John Ostrander. So there's a sense of optimism here, but at the same time, um, you know, the last four issues of Vector haven't been all that great. Um, what I find here is this actually fulfills the promise very much the way that KOTOR did. Um, it is a strong story. It is an eventful story. It's one that does make a significant impact on this series, perhaps even more of an impact than back with KOTOR. However, um, very much like uh, the KOTOR, it does involve a little bit of of needing some necessary backstory. I think this one actually probably needs a little bit more backstory than KOTOR did in order to make sense for everyone that is reading it. Um, I would say this is pretty strong. It's got uh, a lot of characters in it, but they still managed to pull it all together, even though it's this insane amount of characters all trying to have their own moment to shine within the story. Uh, The artwork is some of the best that we get. In fact, I would say probably the best that we get consistently at least um, for Vector. I mean, we got some really good art back in Dark Times, but, you know, it, it was a part of the story that wasn't going anywhere, so we just kind of like hear these shining moments in an otherwise blah comic. Um, and I, I guess to me, because uh, I don't want to get into spoiler territory until we get to the spoiler part, um, I would say that the only thing that's particularly jarring to me about this is the way the story begins and how we get Celeste from rebellion into the legacy era. Because it, it was bad enough the way that Rebellion ended, how essentially her motivations at the end of the Rebellion part seemed to clash with her motivations back in the Dark Times part, and they both kind of left you shaking your head. But now, it's over a century later, and even those motivations seem to have played out in a very odd, kind of head-scratching sort of way. It works, but I think the connective tissue is pretty light overall. And it would have been nice, perhaps, if they just dropped the Dark Times and Rebellion parts and slightly tweaked maybe the way that KOTOR ended and the way this one began. And we would have wound up with what amounted to a stronger story overall that didn't wind up with that weak middle act. uh, If you want to call those four issues a middle act. Uh, Beyond that, I'm going to have to kind of hold everything for spoiler warning time for this one.
1: No, but I can see what you mean with that, because that's, that's my issue with when we went into Dark Times and Rebellion. I mean, the handoff from KOTOR made sense. You know, she's in that obelisk. You know, she's in stasis. She's not aging. You know, all those answers that come up with the other two series would have been resolved if they had just left it like that. You know, you could have had some of the Sith from the one Sith looking for a weapon for Darth Krayt. Oh, what's this? They stumble across the Jibo box. You know, boom. Oh, wow. We've unlocked the same issue. You could have got everything that you had in, you know, the last four issues all in one more issue to Legacy and it probably would have served it just as well, if not better. Uh, you know, that was, that was my one main issue with legacy as well was that handoff for Celeste Morn's character. Um, you know, but I, I'm, I'm with you. I think, you know, Vector did a real good job hitting the one, two, and three. Um, you know, the main events, did they mean something? Did they change the course? Absolutely. Uh, you know, this was a critical moment for Cade's character and all the plots and planning he'd been doing up to this point. Uh, the reader-friendly part, I think, the backstory they do uh, in the first couple pages serve it perfectly. Uh, it gives you, you know, just what you need to move forward and enough to get you kind of curious as to what's going on in the past stuff, but not enough where you have to go back. Um, and that's the other part. You know, you didn't have to buy those other lines because it did fulfill that goal of bringing you up to speed real quick. I mean, yeah, you can go back and you can read more to get more depth to Celeste Morn's character, but beyond her. There's really no more point at this point. You just move forward with Legacy, what you got here, and you'd be good to go. Uh, See, you know I,
0: that that's where I that's where I find that that we differ though, because mm-hmm. I don't think that someone who is literally brand new to Legacy, who picked these up, is going to be able to entirely understand everything. Because unless you have either previous issues or one of those Legacy one half or zero type of issues in front of you, it's not so much the. The story itself they wouldn't be able to understand, but the setting. The mm-hmm. one Sith and Dark Krait and who is this and who is Cade in relation to everything else. The, the things going on with Osis, who is Rowan Fell, what's the deal with it's the supposed Emperor, where does Aslan Ray fit in, who are the crew of the Minoc, what the hell is an Imperial Knight? All that kind of <laughs> stuff is glossed over in a way. And yes, it's touched on a couple of times, but I really think that of the four different parts of Vector, this is going to be the one that is the hardest probably to understand, making it be something that really, I think, has trouble, and my cat's meowing in the background and driving me crazy, um, <laughs> that is really probably going to have trouble with that second checkbox, about it being reader-friendly, where it's accessible to both new and long-time readers. Long-time readers, absolutely, they're going to be able to follow it, um, but for new readers, unless you've read at least something out of the other 27 issues of Legacy, or maybe the the zero one half issue, I think that is going to be a confusing setting to throw people into, more so than Kotor.
1: Well, true, true. I was thinking of it at the aspect of if you stumbled onto Vector by only reading Legacy, you would you don't need to know everything that came before it. But yeah, you're absolutely right. If you just grabbed this section of Legacy, you would be thrown off completely by what's going on, especially I think with with Ron Fell's character, because there's some things that he does in this. In this arc, that that really kind of had you kind of stop, and and I liked it because it kind of gives you a, a sense of what's going on with the Imperial Knights, who they serve, you know, whether they serve the Force, whether they serve the Emperor, how do they serve the Emperor? And I think if you jumped right into that, that 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 might really throw you off to whether or not you even care for the character. So yeah, yeah, you're definitely right in that regard. I was only looking at it from the aspect of if you were reading just Legacy, you know, you wouldn't have to read the other lines to get the most out of the Vector arc. But if you were to just grab this, absolutely, you would be so out of your depth as to what's going on with the legacy characters that you you would probably just be like, I don't know if I like this. So, yeah, I guess I didn't really think about it that regard. But, you know, I, I, I think it works, though. I, I do think for where they're at with the characters and stuff, I don't think you'd be served just grabbing this for legacy in general because of the point it's at. Uh, you know, the, the main conflict with the main villain, I think it's kind of like jumping to the end chapters of a book. Like if you were to do that, I think it'd be a disservice to you. So, I mean, that's one of those things you may have to keep in mind as you go to check off that box. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend grabbing just this and jumping into Legacy. This is a great story. And I would recommend, you know, skip the rest of the Vector stuff and only read this one of the Vector series, but do it while you're reading Legacy. You get the most out of it. We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by?
0: Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances.
1: Now consider that your spoiler warning beyonders Incension of all ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films.
0: We, of course, pick up here with issue number 28, the only one of these four issues that for some reason matches Dark Times and Legacy in that the mirror Talisman on the cover is pointing downward. The other ones will have it pointing upward like KOTOR for some undiscernible reason. We start out, and this is where, to me, there's kind of a head scratching going on, okay? Uh, it starts out with this Imperial Star Destroyer, one of those enormous Star Destroyers uh, of the Legacy era. And it says that ten years ago, this Star Destroyer, the Iron Sun, went missing. Uh, the gist here is that it picks up Celeste Morn's ship. And we find later in the issues, as we see it in the hangar bay, that it is the same ship that she took back in Rebellion. Unlike with KOTOR, the art is is similar enough that, hey, we can actually tell what the heck we're looking at. Um, and ten years ago, they found her, apparently, and she used the retgulls and stuff to take over the ship. But then, over the span of time, uh, the Rekkles have run out of food, and they basically all starved to death. So she's on the ship, and it's like this ghost ship at this point, uh, with all these Rekkul skeletons and Rekkul bones all over the place, and her just sitting there waiting. Apparently, kept at least somewhat youthful, presumed by the Sith magic and the talisman, because she still looks very much like the last times that we have seen her. And yeah. It's sort of this weird ghostly she's waiting thing. That, to me, is sort of where... My head scratching comes in before we even get in further into the story here because of the time factor. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is the year 137 years after A New Hope. Okay. Um, so 10 years ago is 127 years after A New Hope. And the story of rebellion's part of vector is nine months. So let's round it to a year after A New Hope. So it has been 126 years between her leaving in the ship at the end of rebellion. And being picked up by this Imperial ship, the Iron Sun. So for 126 years, she was just chilling in the core, doing nothing, sitting around doing nothing. I mean, she went about 19 or 20 years, give or take, and went frick near, didn't want to say D word near, she went friggin near crazy with Carnus Muir in her head between Dark Times and Rebellion. And yet here she is after 126 years getting picked up by this ship and then waiting another 10 with it essentially dead in space at this point. Um, the time factor here just kind of has me stretch my head. What is she doing in that intervening 126 years? Is she really just sitting around waiting? Where else did she wind up going? She said she was going to go out into the galaxy and so forth that made it sound as though she's risking all at the end of Rebellion, right? That she has, uh, and by end of Rebellion, I mean end of that arc, but also end of that series. Remember, that arc was the end of that series. Um, it's basically, she has trapped Carnish Mirror inside herself by force of will, and now she is going off into space, which seemed extremely, extremely dangerous, because what if he manages to get control? What if she loses control, and you wind up with mm-hmm. the Red Gold Plague spreading? And now we find that she has not just found another place to hold up, at least for a while. She was apparently in that ship Within, uh, with 126 years to just bounce around before this ship finds her and it winds up becoming a ghost ship. Um, and it being incapacitated keeps her there. Although, frankly, her ship from Rebellion is still sitting in the cargo, but you got to wonder if that has been incapacitated. And if she has now chosen to just kind of stay aboard this ship, what happened again in the intervening time? This is one of those instances in which the connective tissue feels extremely, extremely weak. Um, again, maybe if they had kept her inside the box and the box is with her here, or at least it's with, like well, I guess it's in a well, vision with her. Yeah, here, in a so, vision. Yeah. Whether I, she I, actually I, has it or not, I guess it's kind of a, in question. But the when fact, I
1: saw that, I had the same thing though. Like, Ooh, maybe she's been like taking naps in the box or something. Cause she does mention at one point that she's feeding off of mirrors power. Right. but a- And she, that but made she, me go, wait, that's not a good idea. Cause you're kind of filling yourself up with dark energy after time. Wouldn't that slowly consume you?
0: But even even with that, though, there's this sense of, you know, what what has happened in the intervening time other than her just sitting around waiting around? And that seems to make her kind of a, I don't know, it adds a level of what to the character and the characterization of her. Wouldn't it have made more sense to have dumped the Dark Times part, dumped the Rebellion part, and somehow have the Jebel box come into their custody in some other way here? Maybe Rav finds it. Um, Or Mm. something, and somehow they get their hands on it that way. uh, Or she is found by the Sith, and in the process of breaking out maybe one of the main characters from Sith custody, they wind up breaking out Celeste 2 or something. There are so many better ways that they could have connected the legacy part to the rest of it. Many of which would have skipped over the middle two, mostly unnecessary kind of fluff parts in order to make this work better. Um, I mean, it makes sense, in a sense... To have them run into her this way, because at least, you know, she is she's out of the obliette, she can be calling out essentially in the force and whatnot. But I don't know, it, it feels like a very weak connection. Not to mention the fact that basically their only reason of finding her is going to be that on their way into the deep core, they happen to come out of hyperspace and oh look, there's the ship, which instead of running away from, they sense life forms aboard and decide to go aboard to see what the heck is going on. It's another of those chance encounter type things. I mean, but even that makes more sense than, hey, she's just been, she was just chilling on that ship she got in Rebellion for 126 years, what, never having any contact with anyone else? Where is she getting her supplies and such from? etc., etc. Then again, she apparently hasn't changed her clothes, so the talisman apparently not only keeps her youthful and vigorous, but must uh, keep her clothes the same and possibly keeps them, uh, nice and a spring fresh. Maybe it has like a built in <laughs> a, a tide thing in there somewhere.
1: Well, and has she been eating rat ghoul steaks? I mean, that that was one that I always wondered too. I mean, what has she been eating? I mean, she established that the rat ghouls have been cannibalizing themselves and stuff. Uh, but there is something to say about the opening of how it's got a very death troopers feel to it. You know, you got the star destroyer floating in space and you've got this plague on it that basically turns you into a mindless monster that can be controlled by her at, at her will. But there's also that moment where, you know, at the beginning when one of the rat ghouls attacks, she's like, he wasn't in my control. So, so there's that sense that she's kind of like relaxed. Uh, I do like the fact that they kind of give her a moment of saying, well, you know, originally she did want to go out in the stars and explore, but she realized later that that was Karnas Mirror actually imposing his will on her, making her think it was her own. And that was why she decided to flee into the core and just sit. But it, it, that's where I get that, that dark. Trooper or Death Trooper feel, you know that it's just sitting there waiting for someone to stumble upon it and find the horrors inside. And well, look, more food. <laughs> I mean, because that that's that side of it that I'm just like scratching my head because she hasn't aged one bit. Uh, in the other one, you know, you could kind of go, well, maybe it's just like silver highlights and stuff, but. She still looks just as young and youthful as she did in the KOTOR arc at this point. So it's like, okay, obviously the dark magic is doing something there that that she doesn't need to eat or doesn't need to worry about aging. But, yeah, it could have been better served that beginning. And that that was my main issue coming in. And my main issue with Rebellion especially was the way they left her just driving off into space. It was like, wait, but she's still got 100 plus years to live and potentially die. Like, at least with the KOTOR one, it, it gave a reason why she was out of touch. Although by having it happen this way, though, she has a background as to what's going on in the galaxy in a whole and what's going on with the Jedi and the Sith. So there is that aspect that, she, you know, she had plenty of time to, you know, do her homework as to what's been going on in the galaxy. So, I mean, that side I can kind of forgive it and go and move forward with.
0: Yeah, doesn't that also fall into the whole thing of, well, if she, I mean, if she was able to somehow keep track of what's going on in the galaxy, and I'm not sure how much she actually did, because even then she still has some... Some questions whenever meeting Cade and, and that sort of thing. Um, but think of all the stuff that she has now lived through sitting in the background. It's the same, the same thing that a lot of folks had as far as a question about the One Sith. The One Sith essentially sitting in the background watching things like Lumaya and Darth Kitis and all this stuff and, uh, and presumably Krait getting involved in that final battle beyond shadows or whatever they called it with Abaloth and everything. Um, there's that whole, how is the one Sith sitting all of this out and every once in a while actually dabbling in anything? She basically has now sat out the fall of the Emperor, she sat out the return of the Emperor, she sat out the Yuuzhan Vong War, she sat out uh, the rise of Darth Kitus and everything, she sat out um, the rise of Abeloth and so forth, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, she's in the Sith Imperial War even more recently. Uh, she really, really believes in this whole I'm-going-to-keep-Mira-away-from-everything thing, Because if her Jedi mindset is to try to do good, she had a lot of opportunities in which her knowledge, her abilities, uh, and maybe even the talisman, though hopefully not as we saw back in KOTOR, uh, could have come into play. Instead, she has kept herself away. That makes at least some sense because of her idea of, you know, just the idea that it's too dangerous Mm -hmm. to allow anyone to control even herself to use it for the rat ghouls and such. But still, uh, having her awake does have that downside. This whole, yeah. well, where was she during everything else uh, that is very
1: afraid of that temptation? <laughs> I mean, and I think that plays into the fact that she's already spent 4000 years with with Murr whispering in her head. So I'm sure that there's a part of her that doesn't trust what's going on inside her own mind.
0: And this is how she met Tyler Durden. No, wait, sorry. Wrong guy. Um, all right. So. So we meet them, again, very briefly there at the beginning, and we jump to the Minoc, and the Minoc is in hyperspace because in the last arc, what we found was that after what was happening on Mon Calamari slash Dak slash Mon slash whatever Lucas wants to call it this week, we basically had Um Cade deciding that the way he's going to be left alone in the galaxy is going to be a better place is to kill Darth Krayt, to simply go on an assassination mission. Uh, the Jedi would not back him on that play, but Shado Val goes with them, in order to basically keep an eye on Cade and such for the Jedi, and the Imperial Knights decide that, yes, they need to go with him. In that case, it is uh, a Ganner Krieg, it is Antares Draco, it is Aslan Ray who has just re-entered the picture back in the previous arc, um, but not Mara CFL, because she is staying for negotiations and such with the Jedi at the Hidden Temple. Um, but Fell knows of this mission and is backing it up in that sense. So we have a crew... That's a mixture of Imperial Knights, Shado as the one Jedi, and then the normal crew of the Minok, all wrapped up in here together. Um, we begin with them in hyperspace on their way on this mission to go to Had Abaddon in the Deep Core where they plan to lay a trap uh, for Krait. Of course, Had Abaddon being uh, one of the early names from Lucas's drafts for what uh, uh, would eventually be – I don't remember if it was either Coruscant or it was uh, – what it yeah. eventually became Alderaan. Um, it, was it was Coruscant. Coruscant. Uh, but we pick up with essentially just some dialogue within the ship, Danner um, uh, and uh, Draco talking about, uh, you know, just kind of what their mission is going to be, what if Shado had been an Imperial Knight, and how there is a difference between an Imperial Knight and a Jedi, just to kind of slowly fill that in for readers. We'll get more of that as we go along. Sweet. That's one of the th- the concepts they really do a good job of explaining.
1: Yeah, and it also gives you the the prejudice that Draco has against the Jedi. Because, you know, I mean, Ganner's like, the Jedi's good with a lightsaber. And he goes, we're even better. And he's like, because we're Imperial Knights? Yes! And if Shadow were one of us instead of a Jedi, would he be better than we are? He isn't one of us. He'll never be one of us. He lacks discipline. And I love the fact that, that Ganner's just like, yeah, And if you'd stay behind, we'd still be at war. <laughs> you've know, like you got a chip on your shoulder, buddy. And I like the way that, that there's that subtle play. And, and, and it also builds up to the fact that you also find out that Ganner's got a little love interest for Aslan Ra as well. So there's a reason why he's there in addition to. So I, I, I don't know. I like the way the relationships kind of play out through this. I mean, it, it, it just goes back to John Ostrander's awesomeness. <laughs>
0: I am glad that they do play up the Aslan Ray Ganner thing, but they don't do it overboard. It's one of those things that could have been really, really heavy-handed and and been a detriment to the story. Instead, it just winds up being part of sort of the layers of characterization that you get. Um, Speaking of Aslan Ray, she is found sitting outside Cade's quarters as Cade is essentially uh, meditating. Remember, he's trying to get back into sort of a more Jedi mindset and get away from the death sticks as much as possible. Um... As he's doing so, she is essentially outside the door apologizing to him in many ways for uh, her ruse before and how, you know, they kind of wound up on different paths, right? You know, we had the the destruction of the temple on Ossus, we had the destruction of the Jedi Temple, the attack on the Jedi Temple uh, on Coruscant. And as a result, you know, Cade was thought dead but found by pirates. Asim was thought dead but found by the Imperial Knights. Their lives have since then taken a separate path. Uh, And as that's building up, Cade has a brief vision of Celeste Mourn. It says, Contact. And right at the time that he's having that contact, the ship comes out of hyperspace. Um Presumably just because, well, that's just kind of what the Deep Core is, but one could make the argument that she pulled them out, or at least somehow had an influence. Otherwise, this is extremely convenient timing. But they come out right there by that giant Imperial Star Destroyer uh that she has essentially made her home for the last decade. And while Cade doesn't necessarily trust that this isn't a trap laid by you know, the Imperial Knights or laid by Aslan Ray herself, possibly, on behalf of Rowan Fell. Uh, they are willing to check out exactly what it is that's going on. Uh, they got yanked out of real space. Um, they now have a tractor being put on this. They're going to be pulled aboard no matter what. Anyway, it's just a question of what they're going to find aboard. Again, very sort of a Death Troopers type of feel to it. Um, but Kate at least senses that something is aboard. He says, you know, I sense more than that. There's a Jedi on that ship, I think. Or a Sith. Shado says, uh, I sense nothing like that. And Cade gets one of his better lines in here, uh, Force don't love you like it do me, Patisa. Although, again, that kind of throws in the idea that Cade, whenever he's being cocky, winds up speaking in quasi-ebonics. Uh, it's not uh, (laughs) it do, it's it does. Like, I have to teach my students it's not I be he be she be we be day be ah." No. That's not how it works. Um, And uh, not Ganner, but uh, Antares Draco breaks in, uh, which did you sense, Jedi or Sith? Sith would make sense. It has to be one or the other. Can't be both. Oh, you mean like me, says Cade, which is it's a great chance. One of the things that I see here, and I think this is to the author's credit, but at the same time, it's why I think that it doesn't quite hit that second checkbox that you need more background if you're going to read this. He doesn't go heavy-handed with a bunch of, this is the background of legacy, boom, this is the Sith Empire, boom, this is who Kate is, boom, and he beats you over the head with it. Most of the characterization is done through dialogue, and not a lot of expository dialogue either, but characterization through the quips that they say and the conversations that they have. And in that sense, it plays less heavy-handed than it could be, but it Mm -hmm. also means that it's something that is more geared toward a legacy reader than someone who's coming in brand new.
1: Yeah. Oh, and another one that, that gets to this aspect that I really love. I love the Imperial Knights. I always want to know more about their relationship with the Force and how it works. And when she tells Kay to trust him, and he's like, I don't think so. He's like, you're an Imperial Knight. You do your duty. You obey your orders. Only reason you wormed your way back into my life was because Emperor fell ordered it. Means fell either wants me dead or grabbed if Phil decides tomorrow that I'm too dangerous to run loose in the galaxy, your job as an imperial knight will be to kill me. So don't ask me to trust you. And he's right. I mean there is a lot of that and they'll they'll get more into it, but I love the way that, you know, Cade has an understanding of what imperial knights do, although it's it's definitely not full, but through his understanding and the interactions between Ganner and Krieg or Ganner and, and Tarni, and you really kind of start to feel what the Imperial Knights' purpose is? I mean, you know, you, you've always had that feeling like they're a Jedi, but they're a little bit different. But what are those differences? And so now it's starting to really get spelled out even more. I mean, we got a little bit of this back on the Mon Cal, the Dax stuff with uh, Master Snide or whatever his name was, the one that looked like the uh, the uh, Jango Fett clone with the beard. But you know, they really play it up even more in this one, and I love that because that was something I was craving more of ever since the introduction of the Imperial Knights. Was like, ooh, what's going on with that order? You know, I've been waiting to see Jaina Solo kind of kick that order into starting, you know, and this is as good as it gets.
0: So we pick up with uh, them boarding. And that's when, of course, we see that the ship that's sitting in the docking bay is the one from Rebellion. You know, nice reuse of the, uh, the concept here. But that does mean that she was in that ship for, again, about 126 years, it seems. Uh, they investigate that ship only to wind up coming under attack as they open up one of the doors of the larger Star Destroyer by Rat Ghouls. And as they are fighting the Rat Ghouls before Celeste can come in and and cause them to essentially heal, you know, <laughs> good boy, you know, sit down and such, um, they very briefly have this scuffle and Cade kills one and and Dryas shoots one in the mouth and so forth. But one of them manages to scratch Aslan and one of them manages to bite Cade. And I will say that the scratching Every time that the scratching is done in this in order to spread the plague, I had to go back and look at that image again. Because for some reason, the scratching, to me, it never is clear the way that it's drawn. Um, it's always, or it tends to be someone's facing forward and the scratches to their back. We get a little bit of blood and motion movement uh, uh marks around the claw of the rat ghoul. And kind of a pain to face on the person getting scratched, but it's not nearly as clear, for instance, as when the rat ghoul bites Cade in the arm. But suffice to say, both of them are now infected by the whole biological aspect of the rat ghoul plague. And, uh, Celeste, as she comes in, separates them out. She basically force pushes Cade and Aslan into another room where, she, where basically they're put into a cell. They must have a cell block right next to the docking bay there. Um, Easy for escapees, perhaps, um, and separates the others out uh, so that essentially she can keep an eye on them now that they have been bitten. And this separation is what allows us a lot of the exposition or the conversation that gets a little expository to explain what it is that is going on uh, in the galaxy. And this is where, you know, um, I would argue that she seems like she has kind of been out of touch, and she must have been out of touch. From much of those 126 years, because when Aslan Ray mentions the Empire, Celeste says, "You know, the Empire. Yes, I know of this new Empire from this vessel's records," which means that she didn't know anything about it or much about it until she got the Iron Sun, uh, which would mean that until the end of that 126-year gap in which she's in the other ship, she really didn't know much. Um, there's there's some yeah. banter, some some argument between Cade and Celeste in which she explains about having Carnes Muir. Uh, trapped within her for over 4,000 years, essentially this idea that that's why he senses Sith and Jedi about her. And Cade does an info dump that really kind of sounds like it's the way that the, that they're trying to tell the audience about what's going on, uh, by not, w- without having to necessarily give a whole lot of background. Um, that again makes it so, somewhat miss that second check mark, or at least make it kind of iffy. Um, because Cade says, you know, listen to me. What you need to know about the Empire is that a Sith named Darth Crate took it over, killed the Jedi, killed my father, and destroyed everything. I came out to this force-forsaken place to assassinate him and kill as many of his minions as I can run my saber through. Uh, the end. You know, that might as well have been an opening crawl or a, uh, a Clone Wars-style, "A galaxy torn by war kind of thing at the beginning, because that's about <laughs> all we get of the setting here very quickly. Um She explains to him what's going on um, when she recognizes his name as Skywalker and such. You know, she explains about having met Luke, explains about Zane and her finding the mirror talisman and all, uh, her being put in stasis, being awakened by Vader, who was yet another Skywalker, um, and so forth, and how she is now trapped Muir uh, within her own body, and she explains about the Rat Ghouls, and how they work, and the idea of them being sort of a plague, and and how she didn't want them to get out there, so she's gone into the deep core to separate herself out from the galaxy, and protect the galaxy from mirror and the talisman, and so on, and so on, and so on, um, until finally, um, we Um And this, this all makes perfect sense within this. It's not just narration giving us exposition. She has to explain this to Cade so he knows what's going on. So at least it happens in a somewhat natural fashion. Um, but as Aslan starts to turn, and the others outside wind up having to fight against even more rat ghouls uh, to amp up the tension, both she and Cade start to basically bleed from their eyes. It's not looking pretty. They're about to turn into rat ghouls. But the fact that she says it is a plague um, and she explains it, magic is the vector, but the rat ghoul bite or scratch carries a disease like a virus. Um, Kate is able to do what nobody else in history seems to have been able to do. He has that dark side based force lightning looking way of healing people. Like he used back in Claws of the Dragon to heal Jiraiya and, uh, Delia Blue whenever they got the, the Yuzon Vong, uh, things inside them. And he uses that dark side ability to, basically zap he and Aslan and free them of the Rat Ghoul Plague, Um, which, by the time they reunite with the others, has changed Celeste's view, and she isn't just ready to kill them because they're infected. Seeing they've been able to free themselves um, has impressed her enough that she is willing to join them in their quest. She will join them in their mission to kill Darth Krayt, because she hates the Sith, quite frankly. Um, which brings us to an interesting end and a, a very uh, action-packed and perilous end to the first issue.
1: You know, something that struck me, though, about when, when she throws the two groups aside and locks Cade and Aslan into the uh, cell blocks. Back in KOTOR, didn't when Zane escaped, they said that they need to look into changing where <laughs> where the... the uh, the lockup cell room is, I mean, cause it, it's always been right next to the hangar. It's like, boy, you are thinking all this time, they'd have uh, relocated that or something, but now they still have it right there off the hangar. bay. I mean, obviously it must be uh, one of those things where, you know, y- this is the bay that the uh, shuttle gets pulled into from the tractor beam. So maybe that's why you have the one bay that's got a bunch of prison cells, because this is the one where we pull in the incoming ships and then we immediately put the people into cells. I don't know. I thought that was just a little interesting, like little twist there. Uh, But one thing that later we learn is that Murr himself also has the ability to heal with the dark side. And when Zane's doing his healing, you know, uh, uh, Morn she goes, the Force, such intensity. And Murr's like, the dark side at work. And she goes, no, he fights against it. And I I found that was a really telling thing because it's been clear that Cade's using the dark side. All the Jedi, they feel it. Even the Sith feel it. And yet, even though he's using the dark side, he doesn't want to. He's fighting all that temptation. So it seems like that, that aspect of, you know, you can use bad for good if your intentions are right, which has always been like a theme that's been running in the EU. So I, I just thought that was kind of interesting little twist that they took on it. Plus, when he goes about healing her. He does it through love. I mean, he brings up their past. You see them wearing their their old classic New Jedi Order style uh, Jedi jumpsuits that the uh, apprentices wear and stuff like that. You see him steal a kiss and things like that, which you later learn like strengthen the bond between them. But it was kind of interesting how, you know, immediately that you know she's just like all right i'm ready to do it you've impressed me with your abilities and sense of mission and the loyalty of your companions i do not make friends but you've earned yourself an ally i am joining your mission together we will kill this dark lord of the sith darth krait it was like wow okay she really jumped on quick but you know as we see later with with what Mir's doing you kind of have to wonder if Mir's also playing on her as well like yeah you know, th- there's that aspect of her character that that I'm constantly scratching my head as, you know, how much is Mir messing with her? How much of the, the life-saving ability, you know, well she talks about how she's been feeding off his power, how much of that dark side stuff is starting to corrupt her because, you know, absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. And she's, you know, she's launched onto a dark side battery. I mean, that can't possibly be good for her. So, you know, I wonder about those things. And plus you, you also have that the little banter between uh shadow and, and, uh Antares where he's like giving up Jedi, Perhaps if I were to use an imperial lightsaber. If you just close your mouth and open up your mind, Imperial, perhaps you could sense something happening there. And that's when the door opens up and there's the light and Cade comes crawling out, you know, and Blue's like, "Cade, just making some friends, Blue." <laughs> I mean, he's always so so nonchalant about everything. I just I love it. <laughs> he's he's one of my favorite characters for this reason.
0: That brings us into part 2, which is issue number 29, which is very much sort of a a character motivation uh, get inside their heads type of piece here, while the action is sort of transitioning between what we got in the battle with the Rat Ghouls and what we're going to get with the battle on Had Abaddon once Krait uh, falls essentially into their trap. The issue does start with some action though. Uh, we get a twin tail flown by Shado, uh, sort of this era's analog to an X-Wing, uh zipping down in, uh being pursued by a couple of predators. Uh, The Predators are sort of this era's analog to TIE Fighters. And uh, it turns out that those Predators are actually Draco and Ganner, just getting close enough that they can all blast the ground forces on Had Abaddon in order to clear the way for the Minoc to swoop down and drop off the lightsaber wielders uh, that are aboard. Cade, Aslan, and Celeste, so they can infiltrate the Imperial facility there, or the Sith Imperial facility there, where they wind up facing off with Darth Reeve, a Deveronian, and some stormtroopers. Uh, the stormtroopers are very quickly turned into uh, rat ghouls. Uh, one of them manages to uh, scratch or bite. Again, it's really hard to tell what is supposed to be happening in the scratch-slash-bite panel um, that winds up injuring him. So now he's a carrier of the plague, Though so apparently Deveronians take a while to change. Um, and as Reeve escapes... This is going to draw Darth Crate to them once he reports what exactly is going on and that Cade was there and so forth. And that really wasn't an immediate part of Cade's plan. This is something that Celeste has supposedly improved upon his plan to draw him there. Uh, that basically, as much as he knows Crate, supposedly, she knows the Sith uh, intimately, thanks to having one essentially inside her for all of these years. And at that point, it's in many ways stops being an action piece and starts being more of, like I said, a character motivation and conversation piece to add some depth to the motivations of the characters here uh, and basically add, in a lot of ways, a depth to this part of Vector that the Rebellion and Dark Times part simply didn't get for lack of more issues.
1: One of the things that also strikes me is that seems like Cade takes every opportunity he has to kind of bash Aslan Ra for being an Imperial Knight. You know, when they, when they show up, he's like, carking great Intel from your imp Knights, Aslan Ra, just a few more stormies than they had figured and a Sith." you know, and, and I kind of get that sense. Like, you know, whereas she mentioned in the last one, you know, he was picked up by the pirates and she was picked up to, by the Imperial Knights and that she feels an honor bound to, to serve him. He doesn't feel so honor bound to be a pirate anymore. So it's kind of like, he's kind of mad at her for the fact that she's, obligated to continue to help out the Imperial Knights and is associating herself with one when he's not doing the same thing it's kind of like you know he's just like you should just get over it and do what you want I, I always thought that was an interesting take too but we're about to move into the part with fell that really really struck a chord with me it was like you know up until this point I I liked the character a lot and I, I, I thought he was a really interesting character but this one added a, a layer of oh, oh wait you know like you got to remember the fact that even he has Skywalker blood, and he is, you know, just as susceptible to the dark side. And this seems to be one of those moments where you see him kind of being willing to to take that road. And it was just, I don't know, it was one of those stop and and take a moment and pause and think about the character moments for me. And I just I loved it. And also, I was curious about who he was sparring with too. I mean, I don't know if they ever named her or not, but she's back there. They're I mean, they're they're sparring doing their thing when Draco contacts him. So it's kind of cool, like, you know, they didn't have to have the Emperor doing anything, but the fact that they had him training was cool because you know that he's an Imperial Knight as well. So, you know, he's actually staying, maintaining his, his connection and all that kind of stuff. But again, it gets back to that, you know, how do the Imperial Knights serve the force? How do they serve their Emperor and all that? And we're slowly getting there. And I, I that to me was worth a lot. That was, that was something I've been wanting for so long.
0: Yeah, he's referring to there the first scene in which we get, uh, again, the beginning of this sort of conversation building of the plot. Uh, Antares is contacting Fel, and Fel sort of dips toward the dark side there in the sense he wants the Mirror Talisman. Basically, at this point, it seems like he's getting more and more desperate to get his throne back. You know, if Crate is dead, the throne that would rightfully be his will be empty. Uh, without a leader, the Sith will be vulnerable to attack. The Talisman could turn, uh, the enemy armies into monsters that will obey him and so forth. And it doesn't seem like, uh, he's not worried, or he doesn't say monsters, monstrous warriors, um, doesn't seem like he's really all that worried about the whole monster thing of this. He wants Celeste or he wants the talisman. Um, as for the woman that he is uh, sparring with, apparently this is, according to Jan Dersima, she is supposed to be the same female uh, Imperial Knight that is among the people there uh, at a, a memorial service, basically, at the beginning of Legacy War. But for whatever reason, I guess the color has changed her hair color so it became something that was harder to spot. Never given a name, um, but having just watched – I'm in the process of re-watching all the Law & Order stuff at this point, every part of the franchise. Um, I'm in the middle of the fifth year of Law & Order SVU and just watched an episode called Control. And I got to say, uh, she looks very much like she was modeled facially after Samantha Mathis uh, from – that episode and from, uh, what, Broken Arrow and uh, Super Mario Brothers, the live-action movie that wow. everyone wants to forget. Um, but we never do get a name for her. Um, and the con- the conversation then spins off because we get to see Draco talking to the other Imperial Knights about this. Um, and you get Aslan talking and Ganner talking. She, you know, she talks about, you know, I know you, that you have feelings for me. I care for you too, Ganner. I'm forever in your debt, but our duties as Knights will always take us down separate paths, which is... ...going to be something we can play on later uh, in the issue here. But Aslan is one who is not for the idea of bringing the Mirror Talisman back to Bastion. She does not believe that anyone should be able to use it, even if it is Rowan fell. And it begins a conversation in which a couple things are said that I found most Mm -hmm. interesting. Yes. Um, We have Draco say, as Imperial Knights they serve the Emperor's will. To which Aslan sort of starts the concept here by saying, I was taught that an imperial knight serves the force as embodied by the emperor. He should never, must never ask us to do anything dishonorable, and this is. And as she storms off, you get a continuation of the conversation between Ganner and Draco. Draco's saying, you know, that basically if Aslan steps out of line, they may have to kill her, and Draco is not willing, or Ganner, is not willing to do that because of his feelings for her. Um... He says she's right, Antares. We serve with honor, and if we are asked to sacrifice our honor as our duty, then we are betrayed. The Imperial Knights have another purpose established since our founding, which you seem to have forgotten. As Imperial Knights, we obey the Emperor, but only as long as the Emperor serves the light side of the Force. Should he ever turn to the dark side, our duty is to bring him back to the light or to remove him. It is the Force that we ultimately owe our allegiance, Draco. Remember that. And that... Given that we just got a much darker version of Rowan Fell than we usually see, mm-hmm. that seems like it could set up a future conflict in that sense. That what if, in trying to get his throne back, Rowan Fell winds up going dark enough that he is betrayed what the Imperial Knights and what the Empire supposedly are meant to stand for, at least in this era, and he himself must be a villain to be taken out. Now, that's not going to be a big part of the story as it goes along. It's still going to be the Sith Imperials that are essentially the villains of the piece. But it does add this new depth of of darkness to that character and shows that even the Imperial Knights themselves have somewhat of a division on that. I thought that was probably my favorite conversation yeah. within this issue full of conversations.
1: Yeah. Well, and it also strikes the fact that, that Draco himself has got a darkness, that he's so concerned with the princess – and getting with her that he's starting to forget what his duties are as an imperial knight like he's just kind of selective memory here you know and and for me this was one of those moments where i really came to enjoy ganner's character i really i don't know i I was ready for him to take on a bigger role i was like ooh, this guy this guy's got some power like you know like he had his head on straight and i don't know he almost embodied what it was to be a Jedi and so you know that was that that aspect of it to me that was like okay these Imperial Knights are a lot like Jedi what really differentiates them okay yeah they've got different lightsaber colors they're all they're all unified with one color you know little things like that but this really got to the heart of what it meant to serve the Emperor and what that meant and to me like I, I get back to that. I've, I've been waiting and praying that sort of the Jedi was going to come, that we were going to see something with the founding of the, of all that, you know, I mean, we know that the Jagged fell is going to be one of the first emperors or the first emperor, or his kid's going to be the first emperor, which means that Jaina's is going to have a role in that somewhere. And so somehow they're going to be founding these Imperial Knights. I've been waiting for that. You know, that's not coming yet. May not ever come, but. These moments here that, that give us that set in the legacy era that tell us what the Imperial Knights are and give us that feeling for it. That was my gold, man. And this conversation, this whole page was, was great. The whole, the whole angle of it, the way it gives you not just, you know, what's going on with the Emperor, but what's going on with the Imperial Knights and Draco. I thought it was just well served and it happened in one page.
0: Yeah. Again, it's trying to give us the background of this era, uh, both for, you know, long time readers who want some more depth, but also for those people who, are picking this up for the first time because they happen to be following Vector out of another series. It's giving a little bit of that background, just happens to be doing it in a very uh, solid way. Uh, that then moves us to apparently what's supposed to be later that night, when it's really in a vision or in a dream, so I guess it's sort of that night because he was meditating or sleeping or something. And we see Shado, in this vision, basically finds Celeste inside the Obliette and kills her. And the Mirror Talisman takes him over and it winds up seeming like it's starting to dominate him. Um, he talks to her, that is Celeste, about this vision. And she, you know, she asks why he's on the mission. He says he's there for Cade because he's a friend and that he's promised to kill Cade if he falls to the dark side. Uh, she points out that there's a difference between them, that that vision should tell Shado something about himself, but also that she has recognized about Cade that, uh, among all the people that she's met, He is somewhat unique, somewhat unusual, in that whatever else he may want, Cade Skywalker does not want power. He shuns it. And that will be the key linchpin at the end of this story. That throughout this, most of the people who have gotten the Mirror Talisman have wanted power, or wanted to keep that power for themselves, if only to keep others from getting the power. And Cade basically looks at that idea of power as if it by itself, that temptation, is the enemy. And he's going to be the only one, it seems, who's willing to actually uh, get rid of the talisman itself as opposed to, you know, well, I guess it can't be destroyed. I'm going to keep it safe. He is one who not only has the ability, but also the will to destroy it, Um, which is, again, going to be a big part of this story as it goes. Um, we then move to what amounts to sort of the interpersonal relations segment of our story. The, uh, Dr. Phil, um, you need to get excited about your life. Let me show you how to fix this relationship. This relationship needs a hero kind of thing. <laughs> um, because we get a conversation between delia and juria the rhyming pair of the Minot crew, um, talking about, you know, how is worried about the fact that, well, you know, Cade is, uh, ha- has a connection to Aslan Ray. They had been, uh, together, or at least seem like they had romantic feelings before, and now she's back. Um, she makes a good point of, in the process of that conversation, she points out she, her being a Zeltron, and how they're not supposed to get all hung up about one person, but she has, which makes her unusual, which we've learned through reading the series, but now a new reader's going to understand in sort of an organic, conversational sort of way, too. Um, and it turns out her fears are not all that unfounded, because we almost immediately get uh, Aslan trying to sneak in and kill Celeste, uh, drawn by the whisper of uh, Karnas Muir in her head, coming from the talisman. Uh, and of course, Cade uh, isn't really willing uh, to let her possibly throw her life away, or to kill Celeste in cold blood, uh, and such. They get into a brief scuffle over this, a, a lightsaber fight slash butt-kicking contest, um, where she seems to be just kind of going over the edge, like like all the whispering in her head, uh, from mirror that all the Jedi are feeling, uh has her just just completely going nuts with the idea that it's evil, it must be destroyed no matter what, even if she has to take the talisman herself, Celeste must die, it must be kept from uh the Emperor, or Crate or anyone else, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but they end the fighting by him calming her down, talking about the times they spent together in their youth, leading them to kiss each other, and we immediately jump forward to later, the late Imperial commander's quarters, and he is in less clothing and she is in less clothing. So we have to assume that in the span of that time, there was some <laughs> bow, bow, bow going on between the two, um, which means that, yeah, um, Delia's fears are founded. And that's sort of one of these things, you know, the relationship that they have uh, that that is Cade and uh, Aslan, is sort of a wrench thrown into the works of what we had been seeing. We we just saw, in the build-up to this series, we saw Cade with Delia, and how there's sort of this this um, relationship between them, but you're never quite sure what's going on, because she's a Zeltron. You know, how much of this is real, how much not, that sort of thing. Um, and how much is he uh, loyal to anyone, whether it's her or anyone else. And then we get the whole thing in Claws of the Dragon, where he winds up with Darth Talon, which is going to be referenced in this arc. He's with Darth Talon, and he says later that this was simply, you know, a part of appearing to be a Sith. You know, trying to pretend like he was on their side so he could learn stuff to take them down in the end. Very much like a Ulick Keldroma back in the, uh, the era of the Sith Wars and such. Um, and they've just gotten to the point where she and he have been willing to put aside um, the frustration over that because she was very angry and hurt by that. Um, and there's the whole, you know, you make things feel better or you make things feel right or whatever it is exactly that Kate had said. And you sort of got the sense that they had finally reconciled, and now here's Aslan thrown into the mix uh, as another spanner into the works. On the one hand, it sort of makes sense that they would kind of come back to this connection um, to some degree. But on the other hand, especially since he thought she was dead, but on the other hand, I got to sit back and say, wow, Cade seems to be really willing to let go of his loyalty to Delia um, whenever someone else enters the picture. Um Is he taking advantage of the fact that she is so hooked on him that she seems to be willing to forgive him anything? And if so, that makes him kind of a prick. Because he's someone who, you know, we had that whole conversation between him and Delia where he talks uh, some sense into her about how, you know, she makes everything feel better or whatever. That it seemed like he was finally realizing the hurt he had caused and expressing his true feelings for her. And now here he is again, Doing something he knows is going to hurt her because it feels good to him. Um, That bothers me a little bit about the way that Kate is characterized here. It's kind of like he and Rowan Fell both are themselves, but just a teeny tiny bit out of character from what we've seen before in this issue. Possibly in order to build up that background and build up that tension. I don't know how much of that is, that's the nature of the characters, or it just happens to be that under these extreme circumstances, they're leaning and their darker side is uh, is emerging a little bit more than one otherwise would have expected. Because it just seems a tiny bit off
1: to me. It could be a little bit of both. I mean, I- I've always had the feeling that Cade had a dark side. And honestly, I truly think part of that dark side is Cade's a slut. Uh, he's dating a Zeltron. I mean, a species that is pretty much okay with sleeping with whoever. And the fact that, that Delilah is having conflict about it, I, I don't know. For me, I think the conflict is kind of like her way of accepting what's going to happen. You know, she goes, it's just not the same, Jiraiya, and you know it. Cade and Aslan are both Jedi. They've got this intense force connection thing, something way beyond what you and I can ever understand. And he even mentions that, that they, too, have the same thing you know, that Cade and and Delilah had one. So, you know, not to worry about it, but as Cade's talking to Aslan about it, you know, he does that whole trust your feelings thing. And she goes, I always loved you. Cade always hoped someday. And then the massacre on us happened and you were gone. I thought you were dead. I told myself those feelings had passed, but when you healed me, it all came flooding back. Me too. Cade says, there's a lot. I made myself forget. So you get that feeling like, this is his first love. You know, like if there's anybody out there, I mean, Dark Talon, that was just him, him pulling a play, but this is a legitimate worry for Delilah. But at the same time, you know, there is that connection that he knows that Delilah is the one for him, but because he just got done doing that force healing thing, all these emotions have rushed back up that he tried forgetting. He even says, I don't know why I tried to forget, which again, gives you that feeling like, yeah, they definitely were doing something because now they're in the Imperial commanders quarters, you know, but you I just question, you know, whether or not the moment we have before that is just Delilah coming to the acceptance that that it's going to happen and she's trying to find a way to forgive him for it. You know, as a Zeltron, I think she's probably one of the very few species out there that could forgive him for this. I think any human would be like, you know, you're just a prick. I'm done with you. But as a, as a Zeltron, as a species, it puts out pheromones they are very sexually oriented and that kind of stuff. Even she says, I'm not supposed to get hung up on one person. So I, I think like you know, that's kind of like the way of, of doing like what they did with the Mandalorian culture going, well, 13 the new 19, you know, kind of. Well, this is OK in this time because we're dealing with an alien that, that 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 that's what they're all about. But I don't think that that excuses the character per se. But I think that it puts more in perspective that while Kate is the hero of the story, he's also a dark hero. There's sides of him that we're not supposed to like. And, you know, I mean. I just got done watching the Veronica Mars movie and there's this whole team Piz or team Logan thing and you know by the time the movie was over I was just kind of upset cuz the team I was rooting for didn't win and it's like Ugh! so you get that conflict now of well is he going to go you know, with the ex-girlfriend because the ex-girlfriend kind of has a Mara Jade look to her and, and her backstory kind of has that feel of Mara Jade. You know, she's a bounty hunter at one point. She's now on a different side. She's working for an empire. She's got a lightsaber. Uh, So you kind of like, man, maybe he should be with her. I mean, they had a past history as well. Maybe he, maybe he's not supposed to be with Delilah. And so, I mean, you know, you got to keep in mind we're at at issue 30 here and they're going to go all the way up to 56. So they keep that, that, constant question of like well is everything going to be okay with Cade and Delilah because you kind of want them to get together still because they were kind of the quintessential couple of the series so I don't know for me I like the conflict yeah it kind of questions whether or not Cade is the hero that, that we're hoping he is but I, I think that that's been a premise of the show I mean he's he's a drug addict you know I mean he's a pirate he's a smuggler a bounty hunter I mean you know he's not really a good guy and yet he's struggling to find that way uh, you know, and and part of what he was doing with Aslan was was originally started to help her. And then, of course, you know, emotions got involved. She said, I loved you. And, you know, I, I don't know. I think it might be hard for him to tell his ex-girlfriend when she's sitting there like that to stay back when he's trying to get that that building of trust, which you could tell through this arc. He doesn't trust her. You know, he said it to her. And yet that bond has grown again. So there's a part of him that's trying to trust her. So, you know, maybe the best he could do is that physical connection. You know, I mean, he is a damaged individual after all.
0: Well, speaking of damage, um, there is this, this, uh, this sort of constant murmuring of carnage mirror in their minds. That's going on. And seeing the effect that it has on Aslan causes Cade to finally go and confront her. And, uh, Basically says, you know, I feel him. He just makes me laugh, and it causes Mirror to be, the spirit of Mirror, to be rather angry at Cade, even causing the retgulls to attack him briefly until Celeste is able to get control back. Um, she explains about how, you know, she sort of draws on his power to keep herself alive, how she is essentially his prison, but she is also his prisoner as she's able to keep him essentially locked down. And basically says, you know, just, you know, leave him the heck alone. You know, leave the crew alone. Um, he doesn't want to have to drop her in a black hole, but he will, um, so just kind of knock it off, knock it off with the murmuring and such. Uh, so we end our, for lack of a better term, our uh, character-focused issue with a chance for Cade to speak up to Celeste and give Carnesmere yet another chance to see the strong-willed nature of Cade that suggests that perhaps Cade in the future may be able to be a host for the Talisman. And with that, issue 29 ends, which brings us into part three.
1: Well, you know, the other thing I like about that last panel is the way, you know, Celeste and Mirror are saying it together. Oh, I'll remember Skywalker. And it kind of blurs because when he talks, it's all red ink. When she talks, it's black ink. And then when it does that merging, it's like black into red or red into black, which, you know, like you said at the beginning, you know, she's been sitting there for a 100 some years. You do have to question, you know, how much of the energy he's been giving her is corrupting her you know and is he using that as an avenue to take control because as we'll see in the next issue sometimes you have to question is she really in control and you know this panel to me it kind of gives you that feeling like the lines are starting to blur and i like that you know it gets you that moment of like ooh, you know he's thrown a threat down she kind of responded to that threat as did the sith lord maybe her and the sith have something in common you know, maybe Cade's not to be trusted on her end as well. And she has something to, you know, to, to latch on to or that or mirror has to get her to work in his benefit. So I like the way that it leaves it on that note. <laughs> Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We're going to cut this one in half. We're going to do the other half with the covers and stuff. And next week, wrap up there. Finish up this great little trip we've been waiting for. Thanks once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on, sharing our fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online at the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. Just look under the 2nd Airborne Division. Episodes are also available on Zoom, Stitcher, and on iTunes, which we highly encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can find links to our episodes on both Twitter and our Facebook page at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. It's our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or Expanded Universe questions, or you just want to talk about the new films coming up, whatever it is, just fire off. You can always email us directly at SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWorks.com.
0: And of course, keep an eye out as we're nearing the end of March as of the time that we're recording this. We will soon be seeing the brief return of Republic Forces Radio Network to look at Season 6 of The Clone Wars, which will also be released not just through its old feed, but through a new feed that you'll be able to find on StarWarsReport.com for Rebels Roundtable, the new series that will be coming to look at Rebels made up of a combination of the team from this show, and the team from Republic Forces Radio Network. You can uh, find us on Facebook already, facebook.com slash Rebels Roundtable, or on Twitter at Rebels Round. Now,
1: lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention to you our Audible trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash Star Wars you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles, and they're growing every day. You can explore the Star Wars Expanded Universe from any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you hate because Audible members, they can exchange any book within 12 months with no questions asked. In this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this is Ben Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening and may the Force be with you.
0: And don't quote us the odds. You'll wind up spending just as much time talking about the last two issues.
1: <laughs> odds are you'll love it.